All right. Welcome to episode 84 of Seize the Moment podcast. We want to welcome back a special guest. We have Martha Lawton on, and she's been helping people to improve their financial well-being for 15 years. She's facilitated hundreds of workshops and helped thousands of people think more clearly about their finances. And Martha's the host of the Squanderlust podcast, a show that covers what it means to be good or bad with money and the emotional factors at play in financial decision making. Welcome, Martha. Hey, it's great to be here. <laughs> and so today we're going to talk about unstable incomes and in particular, and in particular, unstable incomes within the pandemic. So, I mean, as I'm sure you guys have known and have seen, right, sort of, um, I know for us a little, it's a little bit different because obviously, Martha, you're in the UK, but the US is notorious for sort of like a lack of social mobility and high levels of income inequality. And so for us, I guess, even before the pandemic, right, stable incomes were a sort of staple of our day-to-day -day lives. But obviously now since the pandemic, I mean, it's gotten exponentially worse. So what is that like for you in the UK? Like, what have you seen about it there? Oh, it's, I mean, it's been... A growing issue here as well I would say we we have a social safety net but it's been really massively undermined over the last uh, 10 years or so um, the, the most recent governments were not in favor and have done everything they can to kind of chip away at it or to make it more conditional um, and um, it's been really interesting watching how the uh, because of the pandemic, a whole bunch of people who never expected to need that safety net now have needed it. Mm. Um, and watching our government sort of wrestle with that a little bit and what that might mean in terms of people's attitudes to that yeah. um, has been really has been really interesting. Um, at the moment, we have a uh, particular question going on where. So one of the main benefits that we have for people who are out of work is a thing called universal credit. It's huh. not universal, but, you know, they were ambitious when they named it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's interesting. Talk about false advertising. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, so universal credit has had an additional £20 a week added onto it during the course of the pandemic. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of cushioned the blow a little bit for a lot of people who would not normally have needed something like that but have because of losing their income during the pandemic um that is was on a time limit though and that time limit is coming to an end uh, i believe at the end of this month right. and there is still no agreement um there's no public announcement about whether or not that's going to continue wow. um and it'll make a big difference to a lot of people when they if they go back to the the regular universal credit income. Um, so that's going to, there's going to be some people who are going to get a bit of a shock at that point because it's going to get really rough and it's been really rough for a lot of people. Right. Um, I, I yeah. Mean, yeah. Watching our government also like uh, the first stimulus check uh, that mm -hmm. we had received, I believe it was uh, last April. Mm -hmm. And then the second one, uh, Leon, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it came in December, right? Yeah. I don't remember. December, January. I, actually, I don't, because I never got it. Remember, I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> so enough. I never received it. So I, I guess Fair technically enough. it was supposed to have been December, but I, I don't know. But yeah, um, our government too, uh, as soon as one stimulus ended, the time that it took to deliberate and come to another decision and, um, you know, to, in order to care for uh, the people that have lost their jobs and 
uh, businesses that are forced to uh, close down. Um, I mean, it's rough. There was no, uh, there was, a, there were, uh, we had paycheck protection program, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that was something that was designed to help businesses sort of uh, stay afloat uh, while they were meant to be closed. Uh, but then they continued having to be closed. But then uh, those loans, um, and they were forgivable loans, so they had a nice system behind it. Um, those loans, um, they, they don't have those. Uh, they didn't have those again for a long time. I believe mm-hmm. they only just reestablished that with the most recent stimulus. But there were a few months there where businesses were just forcing to close down, go bankrupt, uh, um, and. I don't know how many businesses uh, aren't in operation anymore, but I think it was, um, Leon, also please correct me if I'm wrong, if you know, uh, I think 40% of restaurants closed, uh, something like that. I actually don't know what the stats are, but wow. I mean, that's not surprising. It should be around 40 to 50. Pardon. So uh, anyone in the audience can fact check me, but (laughs) I'll say this, uh, definitely many businesses closed and there was no uh, safety net for them. And it's it's really rough. Um, even now there's deliberation over the next stimulus, but at least it feels like they're working on it faster than they did before. So that's that's nice to see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we had a, a particular issue with, um, so there was a something called the Self-Employed uh, Income Support Scheme, um, S-E-I-S-S, which I was lucky enough to be able to get um some of that as a self-employed person myself but there was a cap on the income that you could have and still get that mm-hmm. and it wasn't spectacularly high mm. um and so there were a lot of people who were self-employed who were kind of just over that and they were not necessarily eligible for other kinds of support as businesses and they weren't um their previous incomes and, and the amounts of perhaps savings that they had meant that they probably weren't entitled to benefits um and they kind of fell through the gap quite a lot so there was a particularly a chunk of self-employed people who really kind of and i mean you can say okay well they were earning over fifty thousand pounds they should have had savings they should do this they should do that but yeah there was certainly a lot of concern about that group of people who kind of like i said fell through the gap a little bit on that as as self-employed folks yeah, and I, I really, um, Alan, did you want to say something? Go for it. Go for it. So, I mean, I really, so, that's so interesting, right? That when people say stuff like, oh, prepare for a rainy day or whatever, and they're thinking like, oh, well, yeah, people should have saved money, you know, et cetera. It's so funny that people say stuff like that because who the fuck was ever expecting a pandemic? Like when we talk about preparing for a rainy day, what are we probably thinking? Well, remember, in March, I think most of us thought that the pandemic was going to be an issue for maybe two, three weeks tops. So when people say prepare for a rainy day, nobody's thinking like for the next year plus, probably I'm going to have to prepare. So I really hate that criticism. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It's like you're taking these kind of um, you're taking these facts of reality that people already feel badly over. Right? I can't support mm. myself. I might not be able to support my family. Uh, let's say, you know, kind of the landlord's hounding me for rent. And you're like, oh, yeah, but that's actually your fault. Like, it's like when people say stuff like that, I'm like, what are y'all thinking? Who in the world? And it, unless you're super wealthy and you don't need to think about these things, the ordinary person and even the wealthy person is not thinking a pandemic. Like that's just those thoughts don't come to their mind. Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting because the public health scientists were thinking pandemic, mm-hmm. but I think both in, in your government and in ours, um, that preparation <laughs> was kind of, um yeah 
not not heeded necessarily that proper planning was not done the preparations were not there mm. um and you know the public was certainly not at all aware outside of public health outside right. of those um you know civil servants whose job it was to plan for this stuff that awareness that this was even a possibility that just wasn't there right. and i think people in general are not um we're discouraged from thinking about the rainy days. We're discouraged from thinking about the reality of um, how we might need to prepare for, let's say, three months off from work, six months off from work. Um, my old job, way, way, way back before I started doing any of this kind of financial education stuff, um, was selling one of those horrible people who sells insurance um and i sold you know life cover and critical illness cover and income protection cover and and um we would get phone calls in or, or applications in from two sources one was from people buying mortgages um and sometimes from people about to have a baby but a lot of the time it was somebody else somebody knew somebody who'd had a serious illness. Somebody knew somebody who'd passed away. And it wasn't until that reality hit home that this could really happen to me because it's happened to my friend that people would make that preparation a lot of the time. And um, it's, it's unfortunate. And it's partly, I think there's a press thing um, and again, I suspect this is true in the United States as, as well as it is here, that there's a public perception that welfare is much more generous than it actually is um and again i think this is something that's been kind of that's come out during the pandemic is the extent to which that safety net is not there um but there's you know you guys had the whole welfare queen thing didn't you yes yes which is such a you know horrible racially coded etc etc right and it was also based on one like one story and one person it was like this one lady probably had either borderline or narcissistic personality disorder she was like just a a really just whatever i don't want to call her an awful person she went through a lot of trauma but she did really terrible things i mean she even like kidnapped people and i think killed them um so that's one person that welfare queen is based on one person who was like literally so she was like a um, she's a drug dealer. And so she took welfare. Right. And so what people did is whatever, just quick aside, they literally just pointed to her and said, see, this is what people do on welfare, which is ridiculous. That's like yeah. 0.1% of the population. Yeah. 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 Less. Um, yeah. And we, well, we have similar things. So we have um, our tabloid press cherry picking stories about yeah. people on benefits to be able to show, oh, they're living this incredibly lavish lifestyle and they're not. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a cherry picking thing um, yeah. to to try and hold up this idea that the, the welfare system is incredibly generous and then justify, therefore, cutting it. Um, and, and I think that's, again, it's one of the things the pandemic has done to a certain extent is to show that that is not the case because a whole bunch of people are suddenly having to make claims who never would have claimed before. People right. know people who are making claims who've never claimed before and they're seeing the reality of what that process is to at least some extent i would say one of the things that's happened um during the course of the pandemic is that some of the conditionality around receiving welfare has been removed on the understanding that it's unrealistic to sanction people and say we're going to take you off benefits because you're not trying to f- find a job hard enough during the course of the pandemic yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, conditions on 
benefits in the UK. And I, I wonder whether that conditionality will start coming back in the same way that the extra £20 a week is being lost and whether there will be people who were never expecting to have to experience the all of the kind of difficulty and shaming and um, uh, unpleasantness of going to the job center and having to have this work coach interview that you have to have and um, you know being threatened with sanctions for not doing exactly what your work coach says Um, you know if all of that is going to start happening again as as we increasingly have the population vaccinated, as we increasingly are opening back up again um, and businesses are beginning to reopen. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all, all of that is, is interesting to watch mm. right now. Um, is, is the working coach um, part not uh, helpful to people? You would think uh, that that might provide some sort of structure to somebody who's uh, coming from down low, uh, I'll, I'll explain why. I, I don't actually know the particulars of that program, so you know. But um, in my case, uh, this was uh, this is going years back. Mm. I worked at a company where um, I, I suppose I shouldn't say too much for legal reasons, but it had to close because they did something that was not entirely legal, and so everyone who worked at the company lost their jobs through no fault of their own. So what ended up happening is um, I had to get uh, unemployment insurance and uh, look for a job. And this was this happened at the very end of the year, around Christmas time, around the holidays. Nobody and it seemed like nobody was looking for uh, new hirees. I could be wrong. This is going years back. It could be just my mindset at the time. Who knows? But um, it became a struggle to sort of. Uh, find new work. It's not something you could find right away. Uh, my dad would even say to me, anyone who wants to find work will find work, right? Like that's uh, simple. He has, well, okay, but here's <laughs> the, <laughs> no, no, but he actually had a, the reason he was saying that to me is because he kind of knew my, uh, I was a little, I was not the most, um, I didn't have the most work ethic. I, I was somebody who was a little bit lazy. So he said that knowing me personally. So there's a little truth in there. But anyway, it did take some time. I did actually apply myself, try to find some work. Uh, in the midst, in that time period, though, uh, because I was learning to support myself, it's not like my uh, folks were supporting me um, because they just wanted me to establish myself and, and you know, and all that. So it's understandable. Um, so I would get food stamps. Um, and also while being on unemployment, they had this program where you had to see a, uh, career counselor or show that you're looking for work. And there are these, uh, forms you'd have to sign and all this. And they had a sort of structure to it that, um, seemed actually kind of annoying to me at first, uh, cause I thought, oh, wow, there are so many impediments to trying to get assistance. But then at the same time, it was weird. It actually had provided a structure for me to sort of be able to pull myself up and actually feel that I, I'm okay enough to look for work and not worry about uh, base survival. Um, so, I mean, uh, I actually kind of uh, like those programs. I don't, I don't uh, criticize them. I think that they could be helpful to a lot of people. Um, if you, if you can meet somebody's needs up to the point where they don't have to worry about food for the next day. They'll have enough mental resources to be able to 
try to do something to to help themselves. Um, it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You start to have certain needs met, then you're able to, you know, uh, use resources on other things, self-actualization eventually, but right. yeah. Um, Wait, so then, but then Martha, uh, I guess, how is the experience there with career coaches, or I guess, I don't yeah. know so, what, what people are called, how does it differ? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, the work coaches within um, Job Center Flosses are, I don't, I don't want to say they're all terrible people and they're not really really work coaches but they're not qualified as coaches necessarily um they're not, they're not like you think of a work coach you think of somebody like a career coach who's got a kind of coaching yeah. background and mentality but we're at least some sort they're, of certification they're largely they're largely um yeah they are they are they're there mostly to check the box to say whether or not the person turned up for their interview that day mm-hmm. and if they didn't to impose a, a potentially to impose a sanction which could oh. be the loss of benefits for anything up to several months um with no real appeal um and there have been situations where people have been denied benefits because they didn't have the bus fare to get to the job center plus they couldn't physically go there um so you know there's been that kind of thing which is that's the low-key one but there's been situations where somebody is their, their spouse is giving birth um where they have to go to a funeral and they've ended up facing a sanction because they don't go to their appointment oh wow um yeah so there have been some really horrifying kind of stories of how those sanctions are imposed how arbitrary they are and um them being imposed in a really unhelpful way so i'm not saying that every single work coach or a job coach in um job centers are is unhelpful but they're getting people into work is not necessarily their specialism they're really there as a benefits assessor um and they have this power to impose these sanctions which unfortunately some of them do in extremely unfair ways so it's been it's a system that has been criticized i think very rightfully um um, but it's been halted during the pandemic so a lot of people have not been experiencing it while being on the benefits that would usually experience that process right um yeah they've had a bit of a false impression of what it means to to be on that benefit to claim that benefit yeah and the thing is what i've had in my own experience is that like a lot of times um when we're talking about um let's say kind of like housing authority and then we're talking about like that's like one kind of form of bureaucracy Mm. and then you also have other forms, right? Where we're talking about like, you know, kind of the places like food stamps or whatever, or just like other, I guess, uh, I mean, I guess it's different in like different states. I also like for us, we have like section eight housing in New York here. Um, I don't know what it is in other states. So like all of these different bureaucracies, unfortunately, they not only do not know like how kind of other systems work, but they don't care. So there was unfortunately a time in my life was like, um, so there was a time when I was like extremely poor. So uh, my mom and I were pretty much like living off of, I don't even know how this happened, but like under five hundred dollars a month and then i remember we were about to get evicted and then so um so we got, i ended up going to court with her so i go to court with her and she was on um what was she so we were on section eight housing at the time and then we had to go to court and then she also in order to um so for section eight housing you need to actually like meet with people every once in a while i don't remember why i haven't been on it in a long time so my memory is a bit foggy but she had a meeting with them and so the meeting was on the date of like court like to decide whether or not we were going to get evicted so we go up there and then you know my mom 
mom sort of the way she kind of rationed the time was that she said, okay, we're going to be here at like, you know, um, you know, for the court date for this particular time. And then I'm going to be able to go and hop on the bus and go, you know, talk to the section eight people. Of course it didn't work out that way because like, you're like, God knows where on the docket and you have to actually like carve out the entire day for it. So the thing is for section eight housing, they don't give a shit. They're like, no, your date and your appointment is on this day. So what happened was she ended up leaving and then she's like, look, you stay here and like, you're going to represent like us and like, you know, for housing court. And yeah, 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 yeah. So she's like, you stay here and I'm going to go to like section eight. Right. So she left. Right. So the lawyer comes up to me for like the landlord and he's like, Hey, uh, what happened to your mom? And he's like, and I said, well, she couldn't be here because you know, she has an appointment with section eight or whatever. I shouldn't have fucking said that. So I said that to him. Right. And of course, what does he do? As soon as we're before the judge, he's like, Oh, well, he even told me that this wasn't important to them. What he just told me. Yeah. 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 He's like, what well, he just, told me was that essentially she had some more important thing to do and i was like this motherfucker i was like that more important thing is literally our livelihood i was like we cannot get section eight at all so like i mean it's a whole big thing that happened and why we were in housing court to begin with so there was essentially an error like on one of her like paychecks and then so section eight ended up like charging us more money for the rent whatever right so but essentially for the court right we had to go there because we weren't able to provide like the full amount that they were asking for but she still needed to meet with section eight just to get it in general right so just to get whatever portion they were giving us so we told the lawyer that i i told the lawyer this stupidly and then the lawyer's like yeah man well they have more important things to do so can we just like go into default and so luckily for me the judge was like oh i don't do default and then she's like you are and she looks at me and she says you know what you're actually very lucky that your mother raised such a responsible young man because she's like if it wasn't for that and you weren't here she's like i would have done the default and i'm like thinking like lady my mom is not going to atlantic city she didn't leave here to go fucking party and get drunk or whatever it's literally because we would have not had section eight whatsoever if she had like not gone to this meeting and then so what's fucked up about all of this is like these systems it's not only that they don't know they don't care they don't care that like all of these different bureaucracies have these different rules and these rules sometimes conflict with one another so wow. yeah absolutely um yeah you you get similar issues in the uk as well um again with somebody potentially having a court appointment or uh, and a job center plus appointment on the same day and you know that's not enough of an excuse you should have been here for your work coach appointment right um that kind of stuff has come up absolutely as well um you also um yeah you get issues with kind of so some things are administered by through the tax system some things are administered through department of work pensions some things are administered through local authorities those things don't necessarily all tally up right. effectively so that that can be um an issue and we also have an issue again this is a universal credit issue um but we have an issue where and it's actually kind of what reminded me was what you were the story you were just telling about how there was an issue with your mother's paycheck so we have um an issue with universal credit being assessed month by month mm -hmm. and uh it's it, it's assessed based on the date that you claimed so they the month that you are assessed over starts on your date of claim mm -hmm. Um, which is fine most of the time, but if your date of claim is really similar and then you get a job because mm -hmm. universal credit also helps top up people's incomes if they're in low, low paid work okay. as well as covering people outside of work. Wow. Hence the universal idea, right? It's supposed to top you up in low paid work and also support you if you're out of work. Gotcha. Um, so if you're in low paid work, if you're 
pay date and your cutoff date, your assessment date are really similar, mm -hmm. you can have occasionally your pay date might move. If your pay date is on a weekend, right, your pay date might be brought forward right. to so that you can be paid on the Friday before the weekend. Mm -hmm. What that means is you can end up being paid twice during one assessment period. Oh, yeah. Wow, man. And then you get basically nothing for that month. And of course, they'll make it up the next month, sort mm -hmm. of. But because of the, the way the allowances work and how much you're allowed to earn before you start losing anything from your universal credit, you don't get any, the, the allowances aren't applied on that no. month where you get paid twice. And so you, you lose a chunk of the benefit for that month where you're paid twice. Um, wow. And that, yeah, that really, really messes people up. Um, it's something that people are not aware of until they've been on it for a year and potentially had that happen. And of course, the, t the month when that's most likely to happen is December. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people are paid early before Christmas. Right. Wow. And then that means that they're not, they're not getting their universal credit just before Christmas. Right. And, you know, January they get the full universal credit, but they haven't, it's the extra long month before they get paid. Mm -hmm. um, and that causes a lot of, a lot of hard, extra hardship around Christmas and January time, which is just sucky. I mean, that's like, absolutely. Right. Again, you, you were talking about that being the worst time to lose your job. It's, it's also the worst time to have really any kind of financial hardship. Right. Um, yeah. And then yeah. so, and then with the universal credit, um, I guess is the consolation that, well, you'll get the kind of full amount anyway, at some point. So unfortunately you don't quite because um, you, each time you earn, um, once you earn over a certain amount, you start having some of the benefit taken away. Right. Um, normally for each paycheck, that allowance would be the same, right? Mm -hmm. But because when you earn twice in one month, the paychecks are stacked. Right. So you don't get an allowance on the second paycheck, which means you lose more mm -hmm. in the month where you're paid twice. And in yeah. the month where you're not paid, there is no paycheck to to compensate that doesn't right. it doesn't make a lot of sense i know that's complicated it, no it's a terrible system <laughs> but it's it's a terrible system I just, essentially yeah. yeah essentially people just lose out on on then on the allowance over that like, time because my thinking is if you're okay so in the following month in january you you're still getting a paycheck so and they wouldn't just base it off of that then so it in the it because you've You've, you've basically lost out, like, is, is all I can say. Like, I can't really explain it better. <laughs> essentially, no, yeah. I understood. So essentially, somebody may get paid twice, let's say in December, right? right. Because they're being paid uh, earlier yeah. uh, due to the holidays. Right. So that's why they'll get, like, at the end of December, um, a paycheck that they may have gotten um, in January. Right. Because they've gotten, uh, let's say, uh, two paychecks. Uh, or the amount that they normally would get um, is is essentially more in December. Mm -hmm. The amount of benefits that they get for the month of December is mm -hmm. reduced because you're right. earning over a certain amount. And then when January comes, there is no paycheck mm -hmm. because they were paid early. And right. because there's no paycheck, you're not entitled to a benefit for that month because oh, the universal credit program doesn't not, register. Not quite. You're entitled to the benefit, yeah. but you're not... Uh, you've what you've lost out on is 
the amount of um, benefit you're allowed to, the amount of earning you're allowed to have without losing some benefit. Understood. So yeah, so in the, in the December, you've lost out on some, on some, yeah, earning that you're allowed. To. If I had a if I had a whiteboard behind me, right. I could draw this, and you would understand it, right? Yeah. And um, I'm like, what's I, the point the, of this? What but the whole the... the the whole thing is like it's terrible bureaucracy. Right. It messes yeah. people up. Like that's really the point I'm making. Is like right. that it, in a month. But and remember, it's not like your Universal Credit Month runs the first of the month to the thirtieth of the month. Mm-hmm. Your Universal Credit Month starts whenever it was that you claimed. So it mm. might be the 14th. Right, right. It might be the 27th. Who mm-hmm. knows? It just depends on when you first put your claim in. So right. Wow, man. Confuses things. Right. And, yeah. and so I guess has there been any pushback against the system? Or if there has, so what has it been like? So there's pushback, um, but it's mostly so there's a combination of certain uh, nonprofit advocacy organizations mm-hmm. pushing back about it quite a lot um some elements of the more liberal press um but it's you know i I think i think there'll be more pushback like i said um now that more people are experiencing this uh but you know for for a lot of people it was just out of sight out of mind it affected those people i don't need to think about it to such an extent and benefits are so stigmatized that that was also um a significant issue as well um there's been some court cases around it so a couple of the organizations um that i kind of keep an eye on and have occasionally worked with um you know they bring court cases to say that certain types of um ways that payments are structured are discriminatory for example um and that has been successful in some cases not so much in others the way things go but that's kind of the most effective way a lot of the time to campaign around this and so and it didn't just in terms of the way people see themselves on welfare i mean i guess what what, either your experience or what has your data shown in terms of whether or not some people are actually all together and rejecting employment benefits or potential welfare like payments or benefits Uh, oh yeah so there is the most recent figures i think is um now i'm gonna have to look this up because i don't want to get this horribly wrong mm-hmm. um but yes underclaiming is huge like right. let's let's just underclaim we we hear a lot in the press about um fraud and error and underclaiming is i think at least five times wow the combination wow. of fraud and error wow yeah. that's it's actually incredible. massive right it's massive um i may be and I'm well, yeah, it's it's significantly more than that actually. I'm I five times is me under understating the wow. issue. Wow. Right. Um, and it's like and what's so great is like a lot of you know what you do and we what we spoke about the last time you were on the podcast is like the emotional side of money. And if right. anything, like this is it. This is sort of the epitome of it. The idea absolutely. that like I can't take this benefit because then I'm gonna feel like shit about myself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that drives me fair, and I don't talk about it as much I guess on the show as I would like to but people not claiming what they're entitled to drives me completely completely spare yeah. um how if, would you how, how would you talk to someone like that who says like oh no it's okay I don't need it I'm okay oh uh, um so I think I'd want to investigate a little bit about why um and you know why who 
where's the shame right what, what are you what are you associating this with and is it because you feel you don't deserve it in some way is it you feel that um you don't want to be put yourself in this box with those people um is it because you know do you think that the system is so intrusive because a lot of these means tested systems are very intrusive they ask a lot of very personal questions and there are people who really don't want to have to answer those questions mm-hmm. and and feel like the system is very intrusive and so that aspect is certainly something i'd want to go into a little bit like you know is it that you feel like it's not worth answering a bunch of questions for an extra 25 pounds a week you know that's kind of valid i mean yeah. i you know i don't necessarily agree with it but it's i understand where people come from with that um you know i think i think i'd want to explore a little bit about well how are you getting by and and how does that work for you um who is supporting you and how are they doing it and what are you going to do over the longer term um it's it is a really challenging one i um a lot of the people who refuse to claim are older people Hmm. um so there's a real stiff upper lip mentality Mm. um i worked all my life i'm not going to claim benefits now um and um so you get you get a certain kind of pride that's in place around that i think it's um with with those people you can to a certain extent say well you paid into the system all your life right you now can receive i i have to be pragmatic to say that right that's the pragmatic way to get the outcome you want for those people but it doesn't address the fundamental issue of stigma right you're still saying the only people entitled to get back are the ones who've put in right when you say that which is not true right our country has decided that we don't want people to starve and therefore we provide money so that people don't starve that's the point the point is that in a country as wealthy as britain currently is as wealthy as the uk currently is we should not have people starving and freezing um that is fundamentally unjust that that be going on so we provide benefits to make sure that doesn't happen um but with the stigma associated we we end up with people still uh not claiming and the other group that doesn't claim is um is by and large uh low-income working families wow so again there are benefits that support people in work um but the perception of people of benefit system is that it's for people out of work mm-hmm. And so you get a lot of people who just don't claim because they don't realize that there is support for people who are in work. Is it so. that is it that they feel like they're uh, leeching from the government or, or something like that? Or is that the stigma sort of associated with it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's the there's the I'm uh, yeah, it makes me a leech. It makes me a um yeah, uh, I'm, I'm depending on other people as if as if we're not all dependent on each other. <laughs> right. So, so somebody uh, with a lower income sort of uh, who's working is probably thinking, well, I'm I am working. I am trying to pull myself up. So I guess there's a sort of pride uh, in not taking the benefits. That's sure. that's 
even though that's understandable uh, to a degree, it's I wonder what could be done to sort of destigmatize um, people from that, because, I mean, it's like you said, it's it's not it's not uh, crazy to to get benefits that you're entitled to. If you're not making a certain amount of money or if you need to uh, survive or there's a pandemic going on, um, I mean, what what can you do? Maybe maybe you need to decondition yourself from from that stigma. Um, can I give an answer? Sure. So I would say like broadly, and first of all, the answer has to start at the structure or at the point of society where, um, so if let's say we're looking at just like narcissistic personality disorder, right? So the understanding of people who say like, oh, well, here are these welfare queens who are leeching off the system. You know, they don't care about others. They don't care about us, whatever. Um, so what they're implying then is that those people are highly narcissistic, right? They have either narcissistic personality disorder, or let's say borderline personality disorder. So only 1% of the population has about, like I think about give or take has each of them. So if we're saying that that's true, then what you're implying there is that the majority of people who are on welfare either are, let's say they're okay with being on it temporarily, or they probably don't even want to be on it at all. Or you also have people who just like, you know, are abdicating it all together and they're saying, I don't want anything to do with it. So just based on the data alone to say that, yes, most people that are on welfare have narcissistic personality disorder. They're like these leeches who just don't care about others. They're, you know, let's say um, so sociopaths or whatever. That's not true. So at the societal level, the understanding is that like, yes, there's some kernel of truth and what you're saying. And we can accept that, that yes, there's going to be some small fraction of welfare recipients who are obviously, you know, whatever you can use the term leeches granted. Absolutely. But if we're looking at the data and we're actually like questioning people and we're doing sort of more, um, let's say qualitative analysis rather than quantitative analysis, then we'll see that. Yeah. Most people feel like shit about themselves. Like nobody wants to be, well, let's say not nobody. Most people don't want to be on welfare. When I was on welfare and on section eight, I felt like shit about it. I didn't want to be on it. I didn't want to tell anybody that I was on it. It only took some time for me to accept like, okay, this is a part of my past and I could just kind of like now learn to empathize with people who are on it. That's great. That's now. Back then, I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. I didn't even want to tell my friends that like my family was struggling because I was so ashamed of it. So it's like, yeah, for people, so on a societal level, the idea is to hopefully like we develop empathy because if we're talking about shame, so Alan, I like your idea and it's definitely partially personal, but I think it has to start like broadly. It has to start at a societal level where it's like, um, yes, on the one hand, you have the person saying, well, here all of the reasons why I shouldn't feel ashamed. But on the other hand, it either has to be mirrored or even propelled by the society that says you shouldn't feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So interestingly, when the welfare state was first formed in the United Kingdom, um, the form of taxation that we pay to get access to, to that helps to pay for a lot of the benefits and that to some extent um, is designed to pay for the welfare state itself for for um, unemployment benefits of certain kinds, sickness benefits of certain kinds, and also um, the big effect it has is on your entitlement to state pension is called national insurance. And it was called that for a reason, to give people a sense that they were paying an insurance premium. And then they got the, the assurance that the state would then protect them. Right. And we've moved away, we've disengaged from that concept that um, we pay national insurance to ensure that the state will look after us when we need right. it to. And I think that that sort of um, dissociation of those two ideas is part of the stigmatization that's happened. Right. We've ended up on a really different topic that I was originally <laughs> intending to talk about. But this is such an interesting conversation. I'm really glad we're having it. 
And I think it's like, but it's so, I think it's so like, um, so related to- It's incredibly to, related, yeah. Yeah, to precariousness, yeah. right? And sort yeah. of precarious income. Absolutely, because, yeah. Right, and my thinking is with precarious income. So like, if there's this sort of probably like a seesaw, right? It's like, you're sort of a, one day you're doing well and then obviously a pandemic hits and then all of a sudden you're struggling and then you have to get on welfare. It's like, what does that mean for, let's say my life, my relationships, but what does that also mean for my self-esteem? Massively, yeah. And it, there's, there's so much around- um, the 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 fear of ending up in that group um of being of being a welfare recipient there's i think the judgment that comes with that fear where where somebody is is judging more because they're afraid of becoming something and you see that a lot i see a lot of judgment some of the harshest judgment really about um welfare recipients has come from the people who have never needed it, but have come really close. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the other half you see is from wealthy people who have no clue. Yeah. Um, and they're just terrible about this subject as well. Um, but you can kind of write that off as clueless, yeah. <laughs> right? Like you just literally have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, but you do see it a lot from uh, groups of people who have, have always narrowly missed it themselves. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a very, that's a very dangerous thing. I had a colleague whose father had always been able to work for a really, really long time. Um, and then he became sick and he was unable to work. He had to take benefits. He'd always prided himself on the fact that he wasn't taking benefits. And when he did have to have to take it, all of the judgment that he'd expressed against everybody who ever received benefits fell on himself. And he fell into a really deep depression. And he, um, even though his other health condition was kind of passable, okay, not in a state necessarily to let him go back to work, but not ruining his life, the depression was really sticking with him. Wow. Um, and I think that's one of the most destructive aspects, actually, of this. I think that's really, that's really bad. And, and unfortunately, the people who design the benefit system are all those people I was just talking about up here who are generally relatively well off, mostly from fairly wealthy backgrounds and really have no clue um, if they even care to, you know, what this system they're designing actually does to people's lives. And, and unfortunately that's just, they, they haven't got the interaction. They haven't got the empathy. Unfortunately, they design a system. Yeah. They don't really design for people's lives and one of the ways in which that's really manifested in the uk and we're back onto benefits again but it's cool um one of the ways in which that's really manifested in the uk is there seems to be an underlying assumption in a lot of the design of our benefit system um that you're only going to be vulnerable in one way so you're out of work but you're healthy you're you so you've been made redundant but you're healthy for example or um you're a single parent um you can't also be uh, a veteran with PTSD. Wow. You, you know, you can't, you can't both have, both be a carer and a widow and have a child and have that child have a disability at the same time. There's mm -hmm. no, the, the different benefits that are supposed to support you in those different circumstances mm -hmm. don't work well together. Um, and yet that's a completely normal thing for somebody to have multiple 
ways in which they're vulnerable at the same time. And in fact, to come back to precarious incomes, one of the things about the kinds of jobs that you're likely to be doing if your income is unstable or you're on short-term contracts or you're in, um, technically self-employed but you're doing agency work, for example, um, and so you are juggling multiple different schedules for multiple different clients through an agency, for example, something like that. The types of jobs often that will employ people in that way are the types of jobs where people are more likely to become injured in the course of their work mm. because they'll be driving a lot for work or they'll be doing manual lifting of some kind. It's care work and your back is always at risk or um, you're going into other people's homes and there's a safety risk of like just being in somebody else's home um, because that person, you know, how, how does that person keep house? Is that person themselves um, a risky person to be interacting with, etc. cetera. Um, so the system that we have for supporting people is designed as if you're not going to have multiple ways of being vulnerable all at once. But the reality is when you have one type of vulnerability, you're more likely to acquire others, right? right? If you're already from a low income background, the chances are you're doing a job where you may become injured. Mm -hmm. If you're already from a low income background that puts a stress on your relationships, you're more likely to become a single parent. Right. Um, you know, there are, there are ways in which these things interact that are not um, supported and, and, um, accounted for i guess mm -hmm. so what happens when the benefits clash with one another uh so sometimes you can go to a tribunal mm -hmm. um and it's sometimes possible to get some expert support from a non-profit to, mm -hmm. to try and do that right. um but a lot of the time people just miss out wow so um, is it that they cancel each other out in some way or do they get one benefit over some another? of them they will cancel each other out in some way sometimes um yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's the biggest one is, you know, one of them will be considered to be unearned income and therefore the other benefit will be, will have a deduction taken from it to wow. account for that unearned income. Right. Um, that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that often happens. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just like, it's frustrating, right? It's really I'm, silly. You're beyond. Yeah. And I guess that's where, I guess I wanted to come back and talk about kind of the frustrations of, and the extra complexity that comes about from unstable incomes, precarious incomes, precarious work situations, gig economy, all of that stuff, right. is that it's not just that there is the financial risk element of the gig economy. It's also the complexity that it adds to your life. Yeah. Do you feel That's... that people are more, um, so, sorry to interrupt, do you no, feel no, 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 they're no. more risk averse because of the way the system is uh, at yeah devised and and the and the sort of stigma attached to um potentially falling in one of those gaps where you need assistance because absolutely yeah 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 because then i imagine that uh, less people would want to try to become uh self-employed right because of the risks associated with it uh you dare not you know take take that path right um yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 rough, right? Um, yeah, even you know. I mean, there's even situations where we we've ironed out a lot of them, but there are situations where you can um, get a minor promotion at work, your income increases, but it puts you over a threshold, 
And the result of going over that threshold is that you lose a whole bunch of benefits. And right. so the loss of those benefits is such that it's not worth earning the extra little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, those A lot of those have been designed out of the system more recently because it became such a notorious thing, this right. benefits trap idea. Uh, but it still, to a certain extent, exists. Um, right. And that, you know, that's a big issue. And it's things like... Uh, so if you are able to, if you're entitled to certain benefits, you might be entitled to um, free school meals for your child. You might be entitled to free prescriptions for, on the NHS, um, free uh, free or low cost glasses if you need the, to go to the opticians, that mm. kind of thing. And there's a whole sort of suite of kind of add-on things that aren't officially a part of the benefit system, but you're only entitled to get them if you are receiving certain benefits. Right. Um, and so, as I say, coming off that, 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 that point where you would come off that becomes precarious and that, right. that can hold people back. Right, and it's like, um, it's the same system that's sort of designed the gig economy that says, well, you know, you shouldn't, it's like, if you don't wanna have these complicated problems, then go take care of yourself, right? Go hustle, um, sort of go put yourself out there, freelance, start your own like LLC, whatever it is, right? Um, go sort of like find gigs or whatever, go find work. So can we, can you tell us a little bit about kind of yeah. the, the gig economy, which is I think obviously as important as what we've been talking about and how does it Absolutely. affect people? Yeah, so, I mean, the gig economy is, when I think of the gig economy, what I think about is um, things like uh, delivering for Amazon, delivering uh, Uber Eats, Uber driving, right. um, all of those kind of roles, which uh, sort of promote themselves as if they're a short-term deal, mm-hmm. right? This is a way of making some side, side hustle money. Um, and I guess if you only do them as side hustle money, they are not too bad. Um, but the reality is a lot of the people that is their main job, um, and the rates of pay are designed and the, the ways in which work is offered through the apps to, to give the drivers, um, and similar people, some, the offer of work, um, is such that if you are, if you're not sufficiently available and if you turn down work, um, then you lose the, you lose future opportunities. Right. Like, so, cause the idea is you're bad for business. So it's like, you're not that serious. Why would we want you here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing about it is the rates of pay very often do not take into consideration the uh, effects on any vehicle that you're driving. So you right. have to provide your own vehicle. Um, massive increase in, in driving time means your vehicle will need repairs more quickly depreciates more quickly etc so um that is not considered in the hourly rate that people get paid for a lot of this kind of work and that puts people in a trap right so they they've decided to do this kind of work the hourly pay is okay until you realize that there's this depreciation on your vehicle or you've got to pay for repairs on your vehicle um when you suddenly realize that oh i need to work extra hours to pay for that vehicle repair and then you're kind of in a cycle and you do end up with people basically trapped in in those kind of roles which is um not great yeah essentially they're living paycheck to paycheck and even the idea of of saving your money is 
it's almost not there, or you may not even have the resources to even think about doing that. You could just think about base yeah. survival. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the yeah. issues with not just gig economy, but a lot of self-employment freelancing and, and so on, um, is that it does discourage it, discour it discourages any kind of longer term planning. It discourages saving because it puts people in a feast or famine position a lot of the time. Um, so gig economy stuff, a lot of the time it's a, it's fluctuating, but it's constant. When you come to sort of freelancing type work, um, it's often a chunk of money and then nothing for ages and then a chunk of money and then nothing for ages. Right. Both of those um because of the precariousness, they lead to some very all or nothing thinking. If you think about the cognitive distortion of all or nothing thinking, um, where everything's going to be wonderful, it's all fine, or everything's terrible and there's nothing I can do about it, that is really a psychological feature that comes with a lot of gig economy type work or freelancing work, a lot of self-employment. There's always that risk. And if you're prone to that kind of thinking already, that is something that will mess up your finances on top because everything's fine. Why should I, why should I save right now? Everything's going to be okay. I'm, it's great. I've got this money. Um, and also I deserve to have some fun because I've been so broke for so long. Right. Um, and then, you know, when times are bad, well, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, times are bad. Like there's, there isn't the money there because you spent it previously, but also, you can hit that low, which then makes it very difficult to push mm -hmm. and to put yourself up in a position where you can start making more again. Um, I know when I was freelance previously, um, it's been not been the case so much this time around, but I was freelance before um, a few years ago. And uh, I went through a period where I was really, really struggling. I became very depressed because I didn't have the level of client work that I was expecting to have when I first became freelance. And I felt like a failure. And because I felt like a failure, it was really a struggle for me to sell. Right. And I think that's one of the issues, again, where any role that's increasingly becoming, what, which would previously have been an employed role, but is increasingly outsourced to freelancers, right. those or people in some kind of gig employ gig economy, self-employed role, whatever it might be, yeah. you know, those people um, can get in a downward spiral with uh, feeling un feeling unproductive, feeling unmotivated because they're not doing well, and then not being able to pick themselves up right. to to sell more, to do better. Um, and I think that's a that's an issue as well. Yeah, that feedback loop that sort of occurs between um, the the reaction to the lack of uh, success and then how you feel uh, then feeds into how you behave and then how you perform in that freelance sort of position, then how a potential client is affected by your feelings, then another, let's say it's not a success, further leading you down, yeah, that downward spiral. Yeah. Um, I suppose the only solution to that, well, I mean, obviously, besides maybe being creative in, in approach and all that would be, you'd have to 
not be not delusional, but uh, yeah, I, I was know. actually just thinking that. By the way, by the way, I literally was just thinking that. I'm glad you said it. Yes, but, a bit. You have to be a bit delusional. Yeah, like a delusional sort of confidence, but yes. in the sense that you have to, you have to know that because your success depends on your behavior, right. you mm -hmm. have to just bring your emotions up, right. or bring your beliefs up to to a place where the the filter through which you're um thinking it, the, the way you experience the world is uh it's very important what you think and what you believe right. how interaction is going to go like whether you think that um the client wants your service or not whether you can be valuable to them or not um believing that you um are you can you will and that um you're the best person for them is is the most important thing so this way they could sort of I forgot what it's called. It's not. This is a self-helpy term. A law of state transference. Whatever you're feeling, the client will generally feel. Um, so I feel like that's that's very important. Um, one thing I sort of wanted to pivot to actually. Wait, wait. Can I? Can I? Before you pivot. Can yeah, I just yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. yeah. this is really good. This is really really good, Alan. Yeah. So I want to stick on this just for like yeah, a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sure, sure. Um, so if anybody's even been either to therapy or has been a therapist, beliefs are notoriously difficult to change. So if we're talking about like let's say you're an economist, right? And so we know that there's this kind of war between like behavioral psychologists and economists because economists will tell you, well, no, people are just you know mainly rational. They're able to make clear-headed decisions. You know, they're able to think things through. Yada yada. The psychologist will tell you absolutely fucking not. Most of us have really negative biases. We're more pessimistic than we are optimistic. And if anything, right, we get beaten down much quicker than we get back up or much easier than we get back up. So for people who think that like, let's say, again, going back to the economist where he or she would say, well, you know, the economy is structured in such a way where um, you have like all of the evidence or data in front of you and you can make clear choices. And therefore, when you get down, you can just clearly just pick yourself up because the evidence says, well, obviously, I mean, there are downtimes, right? Obviously, people and businesses, you know, kind of go under or whatever, or, or let's say not go under, they, um, they have like, you know, sort of downturns where they don't do as well as they'd like to, of course, right? Yeah, try tell that to like the, the regular person who's like, oh my God, how am I gonna pay for my kid's school? How am I gonna feed my family? How am I gonna do the X, Y, Z, right? That doesn't work. So when we're talking about changing beliefs and you're talking about the fundamental sort of aspect of, let's say the human psyche, which is the emotion, which are way more sort of, uh, let's say, they're way more sort of foundational to beliefs than, I mean, not always, but I would say this is mostly true. They're way more foundational to beliefs than actual sort of rational conclusions. Then what we're talking about is any single time you're even in a minor crisis, you're likely going to exaggerate. And even if you go to a therapist and the therapist is like, okay, I'm going to sit here for 45 minutes and try, try to talk you out of it. That doesn't mean it's going to go anywhere. So for like the economist who's up on this kind of pedestal and saying, well, no, these are just bad beliefs. Of course, they'll be able to get themselves out. These people have clearly never been either to therapy or they've never been there. So yeah, for the most part, we're going to be pessimistic and we're going to have negative biases, picking ourselves up off or like whatever from, you know, the ground or picking ourselves up from our bootstraps is notoriously difficult. And I think a lot of policymakers don't take that into account. Can I, can I yeah. jump back with, a, I guess, some solution thinking on this one a little bit um, and, and also pointing out some problem with the gig economy aspect as well, right? So one of the things the gig economy does is isolate us. Where previously we would have had colleagues, we now have competitors. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so it encourages an atomization, it encourages us, us to not be in contact with our peers um, about our work and about right. how we feel about our work. 
And one of the things that's actually really helpful is to um, is community, right? One of the things that will pick you back up again as a freelancer or as a person in the gig economy or as a person who is in some other way self-employed or trying to find work is your peers. And they will they will give you a potentially a perspective on your worth, on your value, unless they're unless they're terrible people. Yeah. In which case, find a different line of work. If all of your work peers are terrible, like take that as a sign. Go do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but if your work peers are normal people, generally speaking, they will in fact support you. Right. Um, even if they're theoretically competition. And again, this is something where the economists will say, well, it's competition, so you compete. But in actual fact, most of the time, people are tend towards being collaborative. And, you know, having that network of other people doing similar things can mean, for example, someone will recommend you for a job that they can't do themselves or that's not quite right for them. Um, building that community means that you have kind of expanded negotiating power. You know what other people's day rates are potentially. I mean, that's a delicate conversation to have, but... Right it's possible it's worth it and I think that's something that is missing from the gig economy but it's also a potentially a solution for people who are who want to get out of that funk of you know um, the downward spiral of not working or the the overjoy of kind of oh I've got the gig now and everything's going to be fine that that can come up because that's also dangerous right I think it's interesting that you you brought that up uh, a sense of community. Um, so, mm-hmm. comics, for example, uh, comedians were hit very hard uh, with the pandemic, right? Where they're used to going to perform at clubs, theaters, bars, all of that, which closed down. And so, um, they tried to come up with some solutions um, during the midst of the pandemic, like performing outside, let's say. Uh, doing these cars, sh- like you'd be out in a parking lot, people are in their cars instead of outside and they would yeah. honk instead yeah. of laughing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. They, they tried to do things like that. Yeah. Um, it's not too successful, I suppose, in a warm climate if you do an outdoor show that somebody's making that work. But yeah, they, they were very affected by, uh, by the pandemic and a lot of comics, um, especially if you know the psychology of a comic, they're also all or nothing sort of thinkers for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, even the ones who did save, they probably had enough saved maybe for three months, four months, something like that. If, if yeah. they, yeah, Normal at best. Amount. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, and nobody could have anticipated uh, what how long the pandemic is is lasting. E- even where um, I work, um, we're not expected to return to the office until uh, September of this year. It was actually April originally, and then they recently changed it to that. So that's that's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I right. So uh, what comics did in terms of community is um, since a lot of comics know each other. Um, they support each other. Uh, what ended up happening is a lot of comics ended up starting um, podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and they know other comics who have successful podcasts. They'll appear on their podcast. They'll get some friends that they had come on theirs. They'll generate sort of a, a viewership, perhaps create like a Patreon or, or, mm-hmm. or so, something like that, um, whatever other service. And some have been able to make it work. Now, what's interesting is the people who really benefit, who were okay, 
uh, when uh, the pandemic hit was anyone who already had a podcast, actually. Mm. Um, so uh, one who I could think of off the top of my head, there's this uh, comedian, uh, American comedian, uh, Tim Dillon. Mm-hmm. And he get uh, hundreds of thousands of views every single episode. And when the pandemic hit, okay, he couldn't go perform, but he was generating so much from ad revenue or doing reads on the show and all of that, that uh, it's fine. He was able to support himself. Not everyone had that sort of luxury, but it is interesting um, that the podcasting space is sort of... Um, mm, insulated in a way it it, it it wasn't affected so much by the uh pandemic in a way i mean a lot of times people who do uh, the best podcasts uh you could argue okay it's better when everybody's in person and all that there's a different sort of dynamic at play i find that if if your internet connection is good <laughs> it's actually completely fine with zoom uh as long as there's no lag or somebody says something and then you have to wait a few seconds or yeah but um yeah, I, I think there are uh, sort of uh, it, it is interesting that a sense of community can sort of help to bring bring you up, uh, especially if you're in the gig economy. I wonder if there are groups, for example, like for uh, Uber drivers, let's say, uh, or, or musicians where they could sort of network and maybe get together so, in, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been attempts to basically unionize um gig economy workers within the uk and obviously the companies that employ them are you know doing everything they can to dissuade them from doing that um and to prevent that from happening but there's certainly been you know campaign groups and attempts to unionize and things that have that exist i'm sure there are um and i don't know anything about them but i'm sure there are kind of massive facebook groups and whatsapp groups and that kind of thing um you know, various kinds of online forums and chats and so on where people are comparing notes and, and um, becoming uh, connected. Um, I think there is a big difference in um, how that operates when you are um, an agency worker or an, an Uber driver or somebody whose work comes via a third party um, from how that works when you are a freelancer or a self-employed person who goes out and pitches directly to clients for your own work. Right. Um, and I think that's something there around how do you build community as agency workers at, or, you know, Uber drivers or those kind of people where you're self-employed, but all of your work is really coming via another body right um versus what i think of as real self-employment which is you know you're selling your services directly to a client or you're selling products directly to a client um which is a very different it's a very different dynamic right yeah and then also i would add just in terms of the gig economy if it is that hyper competitive which obviously it seems like it is the idea then is that like you're going to have sort of people who are kind of presenting these false images of what it's like like what their day-to-day is like what their work is like um how much money they're making yeah (laughs) so talk about feeling isolated right you kind of go to your buddy who might be another uber driver or whatever and he's like oh i had like you know in the past hour like 10 or whatever rides and you know and um this is actually really working well for me and then you have like instagram accounts where people are like yeah hustle culture 
um the reason oh, why yeah 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 i'm so successful <laughs> is because like literally i work from sun up to sun down and like this is what my day-to-day is like i love mondays now before i used to hate mondays oh my god yeah so like people on the other end they're like oh my god i must be doing something wrong i'm in the hustle culture and i'm not making shit how is it like what does this person have that i don't you know what you literally you've got me into this uh this is a nice little segue into the the second sort of thing I was going to think of because um, so Alan was just talking about how the, the the comedians who did well were the ones who already had podcasts, right? right? And what you've nicely led into is the idea of side hustles mm-hmm. um, and how multiple income streams are a way of mitigating against some of the issues of the gig economy of self-employment of precarious incomes and even so i mean this is such a spectrum of different types of of precarious incomes right mm-hmm. there's there's the gig economy worker who literally is being paid on a say a ride by ride basis there's somebody like me who's self-employed um and will get paid a chunk of money at, as a day rate you know a month after doing a webinar for somebody something like that mm-hmm um on behalf of one of my clients um there are the people who are selling direct to customers on a self-employed basis and they will often have kind of a a greater measure of control but also probably a smoother income depending on how they're working um there are the agency workers on a shift by shift basis um but there are also, and I, I think this is also worth thinking about, people who are on short-term contracts, Sorry. who are employed, but they're on a fixed-term contract in their employment. And I would suggest that those people are also, to some extent, in that precarious position, right? When mm-hmm. you come to the end of your contract, will your contract be renewed? Right. Um, that, again, is a level of, of precarity. We have an issue in the UK. I've been in... Um, uh, the charity sector for a long time at various points in my career and a lot of that time I was on one year fixed term contracts and so you get to the end you get to month nine with your employer and you think have they fundraised enough money to keep me mm-hmm. at the end of my one year contract wow. or should I be looking for another job now you get a lot of unnecessary churn right through that sector because people get to month nine and they think, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get another job just in case. Um, But there's a cognitive load involved in all of this, right? Right. Um, On the, on the person themselves or because you're assessing, you know, do I, do I, when do I need to make this decision? Do I need to make this decision? If I need to make this decision and I'm gonna get another job, I'm gonna have to learn all these new skills potentially I'm going to have to learn all the new systems and processes in a new workplace. Um, and I know that's something that affects the United States as well, because um, if you've ever seen the nonprofit AF website, which if you ever worked in nonprofit world, mm-hmm. I highly recommend because it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, but they talk about the same kind of issue coming up in, in um, the United States as well, where projects will be grant funded. The grants will have a certain term, if you haven't hit your metrics, then the grant won't be renewed mm-hmm. or maybe it just won't be renewed because the funder doesn't feel like it. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's only worth employing somebody for the length of time, you know, you have the funding. Wow. Um, and so that, you know, it's another form of somewhat precarious 
uh, employment. And I mean, I know also you guys have some states and, and I don't know which ones they are, but but you have the at will states oh, where I, somebody, yeah, where somebody can just be fired because their boss feels like it. Oh, interesting. I, well, I actually didn't know that. Yeah. I also didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> no, I believe, I believe you have, you have some states that essentially have no, Right. uh no have very uh, loose I mean, employment laws around like what it takes to fire somebody right i mean technically in new york um i'm not sure what it's like to work i guess uh, what it's like for like companies or whatever but i do know for like private businesses like i worked in a private practice um mm. and then so i mean it is what it is and i'm just gonna say it so the guy i worked for would literally just fire people on the whim and it was a private practice. And he would say, well, it's my business. So I could kind of do whatever I want. So there were no two week notices, nothing like that. It was like, oh, I don't, you're, you're not like, you're not meeting my standard or whatever. And that's it. They were gone. So, yeah. So I don't know like exactly if that's legal, by the way, but it surely, it's definitely happens with private businesses. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, well, I mean, I know that there's greater and lesser amounts of legislation around that in some states than others in yeah. the US. Um, you know, you can't just do that in the UK. <laughs> right. In theory. In theory, you can't just do that in the UK. Again, I suspect that dependent on the type of uh, employment and who most of the employees are right. and their education levels, their understanding of um, employment law and their rights, you know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of very dubious practice. But yeah. um, the, I think the, the, the thing I wanted to come back to and the thing I wanted to talk about, uh, the reason I wanted to talk about this topic at all um, is because as I said, there's a, there's a cognitive load from, from this idea in the back of your head. Am I going to have a job? When do I have a job? Where does the income come from? Um, that is a, that is a constant occupier of a certain amount of your attention. And it, it detracts from your ability to focus on other things, including your ability to do your job as well as you need to, yeah, right? Yeah. So people talk about talk about it as if it's this incentive, right? You have to work hard because that's how you um, that's how you keep your job. Like it's an incentive, right? Carrot and stick. Right. Um, but it's also a distraction, like a massive distraction from your ability to just do what you're there to do. Yeah. Um, and I think that's an issue. I also there is a lot of evidence around, and I'm not able to quote it, but I'll try and find you some and email it to you if you want it for the notes. Mm. Um, but there's certainly evidence around there being a cognitive load around low income. Right. Oh, 100%. I can't, that, I would say yes, 100% the evidence for it would be great, but I think that that's self-evident. Yeah. The, mm -hmm. the, the, just the, the mere fact of thinking about the fact that you are poor, mm -hmm. um, triggers a whole bunch of of thoughts that then take up that occupy your attention occupy your mind and make it less easy for you to do other kinds of thinking right. people make worse decisions um yeah. when there are the same people will make worse decisions when they're worried about money yeah and they will right. when they're doing okay yeah, they won't value uh, what it is that they have to offer, right? If, if they think that they're poor and they're they're stuck and they're in some kind of uh, low down place, I mean, they're just gonna, uh, you know, as per uh, confirmation bias, just look for more evidence to sort of support that conclusion. Um, and the way out of that is to try to, I mean, uh, Leon, you may have other ideas as far as this goes, but it would be to sort of train yourself out of those um, beliefs, out of those mindsets. Because the thing is, it's like you said, there, there's a cognitive load, 
right? When you, when you have these beliefs about yourself or about your current situation. And if, if you're able to sort of, mm, well, first of all, just to address the fact that there's a cognitive load from not knowing, you know, especially from those short contracts, if you think that you're at month nine, right? And when it's a year, that's it. You don't know if they're going to renew their contract with you or if to look for another job. I mean, that lack of uh, security, um, like you said, it distracts you from doing your own job. You don't know whether you have to look for another one or not. Um, so that's, that's a problem in and of itself. And I suppose um, those short-term contracts, they have to rework, you know, maybe at month nine, they should let you know, you know, we're thinking of- Ideally, yeah. yeah Right. Unfortunately, um, you the reality is that the the actual fundraising for the position often hasn't been done by then, or it's yeah. not the the confirmation from the funder is often not in by then. Yeah, and, and by so the way, you the know, organization has no way of knowing at that point. Yeah, yeah, and, Sorry, and you yeah. know, no, it's okay. It's and you know what's funny about these short term contracts too. So even just outside of the fact that let's say you may particularly be afraid of let's say being poor, right? Um, even like if you go into sports, right? So of like football players, baseball players, managers, right? Coaches, they actually hate like when they're on one term, like one year deals. So it's either they hate that when they're on one year deals, or if their contract is about to expire and the team is kind of like wishy washy and they're like, yeah, we'll take care of it at the end of the season. So it's not even so much that like I'm sure they don't think they're going to be poor per se, but like that precariousness there is like sort of it could be debilitating for them and then so it could even be that they're so sort of afraid that um let's say i don't know the team is not going to want them that they have to start looking for work elsewhere that maybe i don't know if you're i guess a player you're sort of looking around and kind of focusing on maybe trying to pitch yourself to other teams even though that's illegal i mean not illegal but it's against like ethical rules there but even if let's say maybe you're contacting other players your mind isn't focused on the game now now your mind is focused on where's my kind of livelihood going to come from next year Absolutely. And the other the other thing I was going to say is that this is not just about um, it's not just about uh, precarious income, but actually there is a there is um, evidence that being on low income at all. So mm-hmm. having a lack of money um, and it's not even about your self-perception as far as we're aware, as far as we know, like it, it's not about how optimistic you necessarily you feel but just or how you feel about yourself your value of yourself but the the experience of being on low income takes up people's attention and concentration such that they perform less well in tasks that involve problem solving and puzzles and um that which can be completely unrelated to anything to do with money Right. right right but just simply the fact of not being on a high income causes people to perform less well on um kind of like basic puzzles puzzles and problem solving issues so people are less likely to make good choices and it's not just about it's not about like a uh a type a wrong some wrong thinking or wrong perception about the world it's literally just that it's it's mentally draining in a way that results in in not good decision making which is not great um, and takes us back, I guess, to the fact that if we had a better gen- benefit system and people were not yeah. <laughs> not feeling terrible about that, but uh. also were actually receiving enough to um, to not feel poor. Like if people are receiving enough money that they're not worried about money, right. they actually make better decisions at that point in their lives. So oh. that's actually a positive for society as a whole because those better decisions will be better health decisions. They'll be better um 
you know, um, decisions around how they get on with their neighbours, there'll be better decisions in all sorts of other factors which will be helpful for them and more broadly pro-social. Um, so that's something that I think is relevant and, and just interesting in all of this. Um, right. And in a nutshell, I think what you're saying is that for the most part, when people do get the support, the relief is like 99% of the time temporary. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Agreed. Um, so, it's about, you know, it's like a, a more stable support system is really helpful. And I think there is a point to be made. You, um, Alan, you talked about the value you got from having some structure and, and coaching and so on. And I, I agree, like done right completely. 100% I'm all in favor of that kind of thing right. um, but it has to be it has to be individual it has to be by people with some like actual desire to coach people into a a role that is appropriate for them right. um, rather than being a part of a process that's really about you know can we sanction you can we deny you this right. um, no, that's yeah. that, that's that's incredibly fascinating. So bringing the de so the default level of uh, the benefit system, if we could bring that up to to a level where the people that are being uh, taken care of have a more um, don't have to necessarily worry about uh, money, right? Like you you bring up their uh, income level to to a place where they're not necessarily like their their resources aren't being taken up by the experience of being poor then that's um that's greater uh that's plus ev that's that's better for society right in general you in you my in my people. opinion yeah in my opinion and based on that idea that yeah when people are are worried about heating their homes about clothing themselves and their children about food um yeah you know, that, that kind of survival level, they have spare capacity right. to make better decisions about everything else in their lives. And that's, that's right. really important. Um, well, and then, so before we wrap up, right, Martha, mm. do you feel like, um, is there any, obviously, in addition to what you've already said, which is wonderful, mm. is there anything else that you feel like economists and in particular policymakers should know? Ooh, um, you know, I had no idea I was going to come on here and basically have a political rant about <laughs> that. Was, yeah. <laughs> that was not what I wanted to do this evening. I was not expecting to come in here. I'm going to get, I'm going to get, you know, um, a wave of, of people coming at me for my politics here. Uh, but never mind. We, we yeah, it, it, it is what it, it is. Happens. It yeah. happens. It's fine. Um, it's the internet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I guess the thing, the key points are one, don't put people in a position where they can't feed their children. It's not great. Um, to be aware of the fact that people have multiple types of vulnerabilities at once. You know, right. the same person can be on dialysis and taking care of a child and, you know, have other issues as well in their life. Um, so that's, you know, that's a consideration. I think we need to relink the concept of a part of your taxation being an insurance for yourself and others um, against hard times. I think that's a really important concept. Um, and it, the fact that it's been broken in the UK is, is not great. And I think it's a concept that's worth exporting right. in a lot of ways. It's, um, it's an insurance that doesn't have shareholders to take a, sh a shot of it you know it's an insurance that instead is is um for everybody's benefit and that's right. 
you know, as a concept, that's a really important one. Right. And isn't that like us sort of on the whole being responsible that we're saying, okay, because we can't predict pandemics, obviously, but we can uh, like, so and that's okay. And then, uh, but on the other hand, what we could do is as a kind of culture, as a society, we can set aside money for all of us in case a pandemic happens. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And I think there's also something about sort of um, connection and community in general. And I think that's something that we as individuals can be more um aware of or, you know one of the wonderful things that happened um in the uk certainly and i don't know about the extent that this happened in in the us but i think it did based on my twitter feed um is is that you know we had more growth of kind of mutual aid organizations that people who had not been involved in supporting other people in their communities said i, I need to do this now there are That's people right. in my community who need me Right. Um, and I think there's something about sustaining that and not letting that go away. So us as individuals coming, to, coming together and saying, look, my community will potentially need me again. Right. I've, I've seen that this is a thing that can happen. Um, so whether that is, you know, you in your community, your work community as um, gig economy employees or self-employed people or um, agency workers or whatever you might be that that community whether it's your local community sort of taking that slightly more collaborative community focused approach rather than always thinking everything is about individual self-development everything is about me and my side hustle me and my hustle culture mm -hmm. is it also about me and my network and how we can try and lift all of us up okay. um you know what, what can we do together um, because a lot of the fear that drives kicking downwards comes from a fear of not having community. And the more that we actually build our networks and our community and feel we're supported by our peers, the less that that fear comes in that makes us, you know, kick downwards and say, I don't want to be like those people. Right. Which was the thing I was saying earlier about stigma. And what's that saying? A rising tide lifts all boats? All boats. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's um, an economic um, principle that when you when you want to stimulate the economy, give money to poor people because they spend it. Mm -hmm. There you go. Right. You give you give money to to rich people, and they they hoard it. it. Yeah, they hoard yeah. it. That's what's so funny. They hoard it. It's like it's so ridiculous. It's like why would they yeah. do it? They don't care about stuff. You know what's so funny? I just like I know this is a little bit left field, but like when people think that it's like, you know, like mostly rich people like, you know, kind of um, flaunting their wealth on Instagram, that's actually not true. It's actually either middle class people, upper middle class people or even like working class people who are flaunting their wealth. Rich people do not flaunt their wealth. First of all, they don't the like richest I know people think Elon Musk is like the richest person in the world. There's a high probability that it's some guy in Saudi Arabia, that it's not him. So the vast majority of rich people do not flaunt their wealth. And then on top of that, they also like, um, for them, the under, crap, I lost the thought. Oh, I hate when that happens. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. There's a great book I can recommend on this exact topic, which is The Millionaire Next Door. Yeah. Um, and all of The Millionaire Next Door series, which are all about exactly that thing, um, that you don't know who the really rich people are. And I, I would say, like, I grew up in a really interesting, like, this is maybe a topic for another time, but I grew up nice. in an interesting social circle where mm -hmm. I knew some, some very rich people, um, but I also was at a state-run school and I was not my social circle in terms of my friends um, included people on a really wide range of incomes um, but just because of some people who my father knew 
um, you know, we knew some people who were who were pretty rich and I think they were not it was not particularly visible they certainly didn't fit into the um the flash lifestyle right right? um and you know the ones who you might be able to say yeah they probably have money if you looked carefully but it certainly there was nothing kind of showy about a lot of them and in fact um, the only one of those from that social circle who ever was showy ended up just broke in his right. old age. Yeah. Oh, and that, and that was my point, right? That's a rich people hoard money that they don't, they don't buy like jewelry or whatever to show off. That's like kind of like what they call new wealth, right? The old wealth, they don't do stuff like that. They hoard everything. So if you cut their taxes, they're going to hoard all of that surplus income. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, yeah. But, but also like poor people have unmet needs. Yeah. You give the, the, the thing that you give money to lower income people, they have unmet needs. They meet those needs. They might save some of it because, Hey, I've got some to save now. Um, but you know, they have unmet needs and they will, they will meet those needs rather than spending that money in, in frivolous ways. And you know what? They're also entitled to a bit of frivolity if they feel like it. True. Like, like why is it only the rich who get to do some frivolous, you know, let's not judge you want to have a bit of frivolity as well? Get your nails done? Cool. Like, you're yeah. welcome. Go for it. And it stimulates the economy, <laughs> right? So it's like if you're buying an iPhone or whatever, I mean, you're stimulating the economy. Hmm? Right? Yeah, yeah. That's a whole, that's a whole Yeah. <laughs> we could go on all night if we get into the iPhone conversation. <laughs> yeah. All right. Alan, final questions before we go, ma'am? Oh, yeah. Uh, Martha, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, sure. where could we find you? So uh, we are on various bits of uh, social media. Um, at Squanderlust Pod. Uh, I'm on Twitter as at Martha Lawton. So if you want to come and shout at me for being a raving lefty, that's where I am. Uh, I'll just block you straight away because I'm really, I have like a, a fast block finger. Yeah. Um, but if you want to come agree with me, like come join the um, <laughs> uh So yeah, at Squanderlust Pod all over the place. Um, at Martha Lawton for me personally on Twitter and then we're squanderlustpod.com to awesome. the show awesome thank you so much for coming on this so much it's been a joy Absolutely. we've been talking about some dark stuff but it's been a lot of fun because you guys are so charming <laughs> and such such lovely people thank you so much and yeah, we love having you on so obviously thank we'll you. see you again at some other point in the future that would be amazing I'd love it <laughs> all right take care talk to you soon you. bye bye all right hey, that was awesome <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Twitter, uh, Facebook and on Instagram. Uh-huh. And on Twitter, we're at uh, Seize underscore podcast. Mm-hmm. Like, subscribe, hit the hit bell, the bell. <laughs> on YouTube. And then obviously, we'll see you guys next week. And goodbye. <laughs> That's all I got. Th- thanks for watching. See you next time.